Time has come again to begin the question and answer period. But before we ask Sherry to come up to the podium again, I would like to draw your attention to next week's session, which is about play. I think it says early childhood play, importance of. But I think playing is very important for us too. Like me, old geezer, I think play gives you the meaning of life. So the speaker is Vicky Hazelwood. Um, I don't see very well, so you read it yourself. So Shelley, sorry to stop your wonderful conversation, but it's time for you to answer some tough questions. Uh, those who would like to ask questions, please line up behind that podium. I speak into your mic. And uh, <clears throat> some of uh, you people may remember that I am a very tough moderator. Just remember, this is a question to Shelley, not your political statement. So if you, our introduction to your question is too long, I'll cut you off. <laughs> With Annalise's help. So please speak into your microphone. Make sure that you mention your name first and uh, make very short introduction if there is any, and ask at two, at the most, two questions. After that, you have to leave and come back again if there's no more questioners. So, question, please. Uh, am I on yet? Oh yeah, Henning Mundell, neighbor. <laughs> Thank you, Shelley, for giving us the overview with the historical background. Um, I want to do a little preamble of your uh, reference to the current situation in the US. Well, it wasn't always that way that it was, um, uh, that the student had to pay everything. Mm -hmm. And the land-grant colleges, uh, they, citizens of that state, residents of the state, had to pay zero tuition mm -hmm. fees. You mentioned Sanders and Warren and their uh, principal. By the way, Bev is from California, and I went to California as an out-of-state student, and I could get mine fees reimbursed based on scholarship. But that ended with Reagan in 66, yes. when he became governor. So my question to you is, do you know, do any states now have any system for uh, reintroducing something uh, comparable like the land-grant colleges used to have? I'm not aware of any. It's always complicated to talk about the American system because it does vary from state to state and with public and private and so on. So um, there was a proposal put forward about seven or eight years ago now in Oregon that I thought was really interesting. And I don't, I'm not aware that they ever followed through but they called it pay it forward, pay it back. And what they proposed was to make tuition free, um, I think for in-state students, but students would have to sign an agreement that when they graduated, they would contribute um, 
something like 3% of their salary for the next 20 years into this fund, right? So it was free up front. You didn't have to borrow and go massively into debt. Free up front, but then you would pay it back. And one of the aspects that I thought was really interesting about that was you paid a percentage of your income. So if you happen to enter a really high paying job or you were Steve Jobs and you invented a company and you became a billionaire, you were gonna pay in quite a bit. And if you were a struggling artist slash barista for the next 10 years, 3% of almost nothing was still almost nothing. So it was a scaled system where you paid according to income. And that's different from most of the models that I'm aware of, right? Yeah. So there are creative ways to think about this. Uh, I'm Lauren Fitch. Thank you for that presentation. Uh, I'd like to say that I'm the product of government subsidized education. And I hope I'm a better citizen because of that. My question is, as the propensity of fake news expands, what does it say about critical thinking skills, about education levels, and the future of reason debate? That's a hard question. And I have to admit, some days I get a little depressed about it. Um, I think with the internet and Facebook and so on, um, there is a huge preponderance of fake news. And so it's more important than ever that we teach students um, the critical thinking skills. Students often think critical thinking just means criticizing everything, but no, it's, it's more than that, right? It's, it's critiquing, it's asking questions, checking assumptions, looking for sources, how credible is this, where did it come from? Um, I think that that's something that universities and high schools, for that matter, need to do more and more of. One of the projects I'm working on is um, a proposal for a minor that will merge library science courses and some liberal education courses um, and focus on this kind of information literacy, skills literacy, media literacy. I think that that's essential. And I'll add, I'm a product of subsidization too, right? I grew up in a working class family as the oldest of six, and there was no money to go to university. If it hadn't been for scholarships and loans and subsidization, I wouldn't be where I am today. And I look back on the amazing life and opportunities I've had because of that. It's, you know, there's a lot of potential out there, I think, in people that it can be wasted if we don't have access. I don't know if I really answered your question, but it's, it, in some ways, it is the most important question of our time, right? What do we do with a significant segment of our population and maybe a growing segment that doesn't care about truth and facts? Um, yeah, I don't know. Hi, uh, thanks Shelley for your presentation. My name's Tony Pargeter. Um, I've been reading a lot recently about psychological studies looking at the differences between, you know, to put it simply, the conservative brain and the liberal mm -hmm. brain. Um, 
what seems to be about a 50-50 split as they're mm -hmm. seeing it. The, the liberal brain being, you know, intrinsically more open to critical thinking, broad ideas, you know, mm -hmm. thinking outside the box, and the conservative brain being more looking for order and, and uh, mm -hmm. you know, focusing on received traditions that they don't wish to question, um, like religion and others where, where by definition, you, you can't apply critical thinking to it. So uh, my question is, how do you address this kind of split in mindset um, in trying to do liberal education? And, and to what extent, realistically, can a conservative brain be pried open by liberal education? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tad warned me about you guys. <laughs> You're a tough audience. Uh, I wasn't aware of any brain studies. That's fascinating. I think neuroscience is, you know, going to change the way we look at the world in many ways. Um, some of it, yeah, some of it probably is kind of personality sorts of things. And, you know, I come from a background of mathematics. I did a PhD in math. And I came to liberal education through critical thinking. Students would always ask me, what can you do with a degree in math? Well, nothing really except do a PhD and hope there's a university job. But I would tell them, math teaches you to think about anything. And that's a really good skill. And so eventually I was forced to kind of put my money where my mouth is and see if I could think about other things. Um, so I, I kind of like logic and order and consistency and list making. And so maybe I have that conservative side too. It does seem that our society is getting more and more polarized, certainly in American politics, between left and right and, and Republican and Democrat and, and maybe to some extent in this country. I, I, for many years, have taught a large first-year class in liberal education and it's called knowledge across disciplines. And we look at how people know things, what we know, what kinds of questions we can ask, what the standards of evidence are in science, social science, humanities. And our students, some come from other places, but many of them are small town Alberta kids, right? And they come in with some preconceived ideas about the world. And I always tell them, I'm not gonna tell you who to vote for. I'm not even going to tell you who I vote for. By the end of the course, you may be able to guess what my politics are, but I'm going to try and present um, a wider view than you might be used to, and you can argue. So one of their, their first essay topic is actually to write about what should the funding model for higher education be in Alberta. And there's no right or wrong answer. Pick what you think. Just be prepared to defend it. And we, we do find, I mean, some students already kind of think in those more liberal ways. Some are not reached at all, but there is a pocket in the middle where at the very least they'll say, well, I hadn't really thought of that, you know? We all, I think, grow up taking for granted the worldview that we live in, right? The, the place and the customs and the society and one of the things that, that a good first-year university education can 
do for students is to make them see that other people do it differently. And just because we do it this way, it's not the only way, it's not the right way. And you have to at least be aware of the variety out there. And maybe I'm just being content with limited successes, but I think that that's a start to at least recognize that there are lots of ways to look at the world and to do things other than how we've always done it. And that one has to justify opinions with facts and data and evidence. That also is not an answer to the question, but <laughs> I'm trying. Um, Austin Fennell. Um, thank you, Dean, for your address. You have a very important department. Uh, go on fighting for it. I remember at one time in which the president of the university spoke to us and he told us how it was threatened. Anyway, a very long time ago, I was required to take Greek. As I said, it was a long time ago. So I asked my neighbor, where I was living here in Lethbridge, if he would find out if there was anybody teaching Greek so I could take a refresher. So my neighbor, who teaches geography at the university, he says, nobody's teaching it. So my question is, is anybody teaching it now? Uh, I think so. I, there are people in um, religious studies and Asian, well, Asian studies teaching various other languages and people in um, classics and archaeology who teach Latin and Greek. Um, not on any sustained basis, I don't think. Um, more focus on modern languages, unfortunately, yeah. I was probably the last generation in high school where people took Latin. I studied Latin for five years, and my mother thought I should become a pharmacist, because what else do you do with Latin, right? Um, and, and it's the same kind of argument. That's a useless, dead language. Where will you ever use that? And yet, um, when you study other languages, you learn, um, you learn part of the worldview, but that's also where I learned grammar and structure. And later on, when I got to live in Italy and France and Germany, it was Latin that helped me learn new languages. So, yeah, good for you for learning Greek. Excuse I tried me. for about two weeks to learn Greek and didn't. didn't Excuse me, I'm beginning to be a bit worried about the time. Yeah. We have 15 minutes left. There are six persons standing up. <laughs> so there's two minutes okay. for each question and answer. Is that okay? I will keep my answer short. Remo Brasilato, long live Latin and Greek. Um, could you comment on neoliberalism as a viewpoint, perhaps as an ideology, and whether it is a threat to the very existence of liberal education at the university? As a mathematician, it's not something I know a whole lot about. I've been reading about it as, uh, since I've been in liberal education. I do think I do think it is a bit of a threat. Um, it still um, at least pays lip service to a lot of those liberal values and ideals, 
but it's also um, in many ways bought into this kind of commodification, and that's the danger, right? Um, the U of L, I think, is very committed to liberal education. Um, it's where our roots are, where our heart is, and um, with the formation of the school, it's, I think, a, a very firm statement that we believe in this kind of education. We think it sets us apart from other universities, and we think it's valuable, but it's a hard fight at the moment. It is. Mary Shillington, thank you for your talk. Uh, thinking about liberal education uh, made me think, uh, as you were speaking, about uh, a program last night on CBC on the news, where um, he was Andrew was interviewing children about the uh, coronavirus and what they had learned. And there was both an 11-year-old and a 12-year-old who were prepared to not just believe what they heard, but to do research on it and find out what the best research was. And they had a teacher who was helping them do that. So uh, what it makes me think of is that it's not just at university level that we need to have critical yes. thinking, but we need yes. to have it at elementary schools and mm -hmm. so on. Uh, just your comment on that. Yes, thank you, I agree 100%. It's gotta start really early. Uh, thank you, Ian Hurdle. I remember from my engineering program, there was only one arts course in mm, the whole thing. Yeah. I think it's changed a little bit. My viewpoint on this is we have liberal education, which I think is kind of a red flag for more fundamental religions and people of the conservative stream. Is that just a mislabel or can you give us a new word that would hmm. not wave a red flag? <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, when we formed the school, that was a suggestion that came up. Maybe call it something else. It might be an easier sell. The name's been around for 2,500 years. I think we're kind of stuck with it. So I start every talk with, it's not the Liberal Party. It's, you know, the free thinking. Uh, yeah, good point. <laughs> Ken Sears, and I'm sorry, Tad, I'm going to be a little bit longer because I came to University of Lethbridge in 1971. First year was across the river. And I wound up in a course in a program called Colloquium Studies, which lasted for about four years, which was essentially a, a completely independent studies degree. Mm -hmm. You formed your own course of studies, yeah. you um, proposed what you were going going to prove at the end of it, and then you had however many years, months, or weeks it took you to either flame out or to come <laughs> up with something. Yeah. Um, and that was the cutting edge of the university at that time. That was what we thought about yes, as a liberal yes. education. That's what we thought about as an education. Mm -hmm. And then about 1975, somewhere in there, student enrollments dropped. They plummeted right across the country. There was an oversupply of, of universities. And from that, what we got was an immediate push to create a faculty of management arts, to create specialist mm -hmm. departments, mm -hmm. and they won. Yeah. And the result of that, and this is what I want you to comment on, because I'm not sure if you're going even far enough what you're doing with liberal education right now, is I watched the various departments in the university turn in upon themselves. 
become little villages, become little silos, looking only at themselves and the other people in that little area and fighting with one another. And I'm hoping that the concept of a liberal education can start to reverse that, but I'm fairly sanguine about it. So could you comment on that? Yes, indeed. Those freewheeling 60s when the university opened, a degree was 40 courses. Any courses you wanted, you could make up your own, you could invent your own program, it was amazing. Um, and then people got more practical and society changed and the numbers went up and down. Um, I think we have certainly tried to stay true to our liberal education roots. So an example I use with, with students is um, in some places in Canada, if you wanted to study math, um, of your 40 courses in your degree, 37 of those would be required math courses. You would have three electives. And those could be math or stats or computing or physics if you wanted them to be, but you had free choice. That's one extreme. U of L has been at the other extreme. We don't think that that's good for you as a thinker, as a employee, as a citizen, right? So there were some compromises, I think, when the School of Liberal Education was set up. And we have tried very hard to hold the line, I think, about breadth. And so one of the things that my school oversees is these breadth lists. And so a typical major accounts for anywhere from 15 to I think the highest is 24 or 25 of your courses, of your 40 courses in your degree. And then you have to fulfill some breadth requirements on top of that, and then if there's anything left, you have free choice. And so every student has to take four courses from each of three main areas. So every student has to take at least four courses from a science list. Everybody has to do some science. Every student has to take at least four courses from a humanities list, humanities and arts list. Every student has to take at least four from a social science list. And so we've enforced that. We require students to do this breadth um, as well as their major. And so we've had some creep in in the um, depth of the majors, but we've managed to hold on to that breadth. And that actually has some hidden advantages because you know students come in, 75% of them come in thinking they know what they want to do, and of those, 60% change their mind anyway in first year. So first year is for shopping around, and if you're taking all these broad things, um, and you change your mind, you don't have to start over from scratch. Um, but also, you're forced into trying new things, new subjects that you might not know about. And very often, students will take something because it's on the breadth list and find out actually it's really interesting and they love it and they change majors. Surprised how often that happens. Bev. Hi, Hi Shelley. Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Yes. Thank you very much. I'm one of those students who went to University of California at Davis, land-grant university, sister of Berkeley, yeah. and um, we had to take breadth and width requirements. Mm -hmm. The first two years, 10 courses, that was on the um, 
undergrad, you know, the first two years, what were they called? Um, I don't know, under division, lower yeah, division. Right. And everyone had to take those, and I went from engineering to psychology. Yeah. <laughs> to my parents' yes. chagrin. Yeah. <laughs> you can't do a blessed thing with that, Bev. <laughs> Okay, in ancient Greece, the citizens were um, the, the um, citizens were the ones who voted. They had a vote. The rest of the people, the women, the uh, people who weren't educated, weren't free men, didn't have a vote. So democracy was based on an educated population. So um, with the demise of our uh, liberal arts, I would say we would, it would also indicate a demise of democracy. So I'm just wondering, with the UCP having the markers, the commodification markers uh, in their plans to evaluate the Alberta universities, in particular the U of L, that would seem to fly in the face of the liberal arts basis or the liberal arts charter. So my first question is, how could they do that if that's against what the university stands for? And my second question is, with the increase in selfishness in our society, do you know if there's any research that shows a relationship between the increased commodification of education under the neoliberal governments and the rise of self-centeredness in our society. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'll answer your second question first. I'm not aware of any research. I think that could be a PhD thesis out there somewhere for someone or a really good research project. Um, I think a lot of these trends in society are very much interconnected, right? And I think, um, I mean, liberal education is um, about, at its roots, it's about um, engaged citizenship, engaged community members, and if we devalue that as a society, I think it does harm democracy, right? Our democracy has been based on, on community participation and uh, I, think, I think there probably are trends where those things go together. I'm not aware of any research yet and that's certainly something to watch for. But when you see, um, again, a kind of polarization of views um, of, um, of political views and of social views and a gap where we can't even talk to each other over, over that gap. Um, that's very scary for democracy and, and it, it comes back to that idea of education as conversation. We have to figure out how to talk about these things um, politely and civilly and respectfully and disagree about things um, or we're all in really big trouble. So and do you, what about the, the, my first question was yes. whether the UCP commodification ed education mm. is threatening to liberal education? Well, if they could use that yeah. as markers to evaluate yes. if, if your actual baseline, yes. the reason the raison d'etre of the university is something different than that. Yes. Well, they are still rolling out the performance indicators that they're going to use. And I think that the individual institutions will have a chance to have some input into that based on their, their mandates and their philosophies. 
somebody asked me earlier about, um, isn't it reasonable to expect universities to um, measure outputs and to be accountable? And I think that that's absolutely true, right? Um, we haven't always done a good enough job of explaining to society and accounting to society. It's a big chunk of taxpayer money. We owe explanations and, and data. Um, how we measure and what we measure is really going to be the question. And we don't have a lot of clarity on that yet, what the measures will be. Um, I think we, we hope that we can shape the questions that will be asked and some of the measures. Uh, one of the ones that's talked about is looking at income of graduates at regular intervals, five or 10 or 20 years post-graduation. Um, that's a reasonable thing to study. I'm not sure that the university has access to that data because it's confidential what people earn 10 years after graduation. But the government may be able to track that. Um, but we do have to point out then um, the research that I mentioned earlier, that there is a lag in many areas in the first five to 10 years and then surpasses, so we will need some long-term data collection. Um, from the point of view of critical thinking, I think collecting data is really important. We need evidence, right? And um, I'm fine with that. We have to put together good arguments based on our data. No. This will be the last question. Thank you, Leona. Leona Jacobs, thanks, Shelley. Um, mm. As you know, I come out of library land. Yes. And uh, when the internet was being invented, and the World Wide Web in specifically, which is within my lifetime, within my professional lifetime, <laughs> um, one of the cautions that we had in library land was the loss of um, serendipity mm. um, and, mm -hmm. and the impact that that would have and this sort of anybody can be a publisher type thing. So fast forward, um, you know, 20, 30 years later, um, to one of, the, one of the classes that I taught just sort of on the eve of my retirement was in fact about bias and search engines. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the students I remember being totally stunned to realize that what they were getting was actually influenced by programmers yes. in the back room and the philosophy of the programmers in the back room. And so to what extent do you see technology, be it social media, browser bias, et cetera, mm -hmm. being a challenge to what you're trying to accomplish in liberal mm -hmm. education? Well, I see the use of media, that's a good question. Um, I see the use of media as both um, a tool, an advantage, but also a threat and a disadvantage, and that's part of um, what critical thinking means in this, this decade and century, right? We have to teach students very carefully from the beginning about the reliability or lack thereof of social media. And I think uh, there's several aspects there. Um, one thing that's been commented on a lot is those of us old people like me who are on Facebook all the time, apparently nobody under 28 uses Facebook anymore, but um, we live in our social media bubbles. We follow people with similar ideas and interests, and so we tend to get 
constant reinforcement of our own worldview, and we need to venture out and hear what other people are saying so that we can have this kind of civil discourse. But I think um, some of that education about media has percolated down through uh, university courses and into the K-12 system as well, that students are being taught about search engines and the algorithms that um, are used to, to rank pages, for example, when you Google something, and about sources. We certainly do a lot of that in our, our first uh, level uh, liberal education courses. We do a lot of library labs, as you know, and students are talked to about that, right? Don't believe everything you read out there. Ask for sources. Um, that's a new piece of critical thinking that's happened in the last 20 to 30 years. I think information literacy, statistical literacy, I mean, I used to teach, you know, How to Lie with Statistics, the name of a famous book, right? We used to do it on paper with charts, and now it's much more sophisticated on the internet, but same issues. And thank you very much, Shelley. <laughs> and our questions were also top class quality, and thank you for all the questioners. So thank you very much, and come again next week. <laughs>